I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Good boy. Can I have a kiss? <laughs> Thank you. Molly Lebensky is one of about a million Canadians who became pet owners during the pandemic. That's enough. <laughs> Thank you. That's plenty. It's plenty of kisses. Thank you. Duncan is a rescue dog. A two-year-old Australian Shepherd. Bless you. Bless you. Oh, that was a big one. While caring for her new friend, Molly is finishing her PhD in English at Queen's University. For her dissertation, she's examining the portrayal of dogs in American fiction. I'm interested in how dogs are symbolic in literature because I also think they're symbolic in life. Molly argues there's a major disconnect between how North Americans imagine the human-canine relationship and the reality of our treatment of animals more generally. I'm trying to poke holes in the relationship that is seemingly the most symbiotic in hopes that it will also inspire reflection on how we interact with animals elsewhere. Molly uses fiction to expose a truth, a cultural contradiction we still struggle to see. I knew I had to shoot my big yellow dog. Once I knew for sure I had to do it, I don't think I really felt anything. Molly Lebensky is the latest student to be featured in our series, Ideas from the Trenches, where we showcase intriguing PhD research underway across the country. The series is produced by Tom Howell and Nikola Lukšić. Molly Lebensky's approach to literature is unusual. It involves trying to read stories from the point of view of the animals in them. I think that they're as important in literature as human characters are. So we often look to literature and art as a way of reflecting on cultural values in society. And the dog is really often ignored as an individual in itself in literature. So they're always used as symbols for the often male protagonist in a coming-of-age story. This way of reading stories makes clear what would otherwise be easy to overlook. Broadly speaking, dogs in novels get used. They're essentially tools. And Molly sees the same attitude in real life. I think we've really, over the last few decades, developed a bit more of an entitlement when it comes to our relationship with dogs. I think we don't really consider why we want them in our lives enough and what we get out of them, what they get out of the relationship. I think pet keeping has become largely a selfish pursuit. We get dogs specifically for personal reasons that don't really benefit the dog. So whether it's to assuage our own loneliness um, if you want to get more exercise in, you think getting a dog is the way to make that happen. Couples often get dogs to sort of test the waters before they have children. And now it's at the point where we're, we've got designer dogs, we're customizing them so they can come in any color, any pattern, any size. They can have white socks on their feet if that's what you think is cute. And why is this a problem? 
Um, I think it's a problem because so many dogs are worthy companions that are ultimately euthanized in shelters based on our entitlement to have dogs that cater to our own preferences. In the 1990s through to the early 2000s, up to 2 million shelter dogs were euthanized across North America in a given year. But since then, the numbers have been on a steady decline, and over the past decade or so, about 300 to 400,000 shelter dogs were euthanized each year. The fact that we're still treating dogs as useful or useless tools should bother us more than it does. At least that's Molly's contention. If we really loved dogs, we would be trying to help ones that already exist rather than creating ones to our sort of weirdly specific needs. The demand for these designer dogs has seen puppy prices soar. Top 10 designer dogs. He's a Borador, which is a Labrador Border Collie mix. Maltipoo, Maltese plus miniature poodle. Some breeders charging up to $15,000. They're one of the lucky couples able to purchase a highly sought-after Groodle. Snoodle, Poodle plus Schnauzer. People are asking over $15,000 for a Groodle puppy. Picking out a designer dog based on a trend ignores the countless animals languishing in shelters. You're breeding these sorts of dogs that are having orthopedic and respiratory problems. The word design is perfect. You can design a dog in a way that really reduces them to more of a commodity than it does a companion. Molly argues that instead of seeking out perfect breeds, we should attend to the thousands of dogs that already exist, but who are abandoned to shelters. Take a golden doodle called Snoopy, for example. So he, he's barking, but he looks happy. No, he's not happy. Oh, no? So there's a few different types of tail wags. Snoopy ended up being surrendered by his owner in what's probably the Shangri-La of dog rescues, a private animal shelter called Dog Tales. My name's Cassandra Ferrante, and I'm one of the dog trainers here at Dog Tales Rescue. It's been insane, the amount of surrenders that we get. We can't even keep up with the surrenders, so we try our best. We offer free training uh, for people to keep their dogs. Maybe it's just a misunderstanding of behaviors, and we try to educate them first. I would say it's tripled since I started working here, the amount of surrender requests that we get. Depending on the day, I would say about five to ten surrender applications a day. The shelter is on a 50-acre farm just north of Toronto, an idyllic setting with expansive rolling hills. They can shelter up to 120 dogs. And in the larger, renovated barn, which is now a spacious kennel, each dog has its own separate little room with repurposed Victorian-style furniture. Roughly 50 employees care for them and take them on regular walks. Snoopy is one of their recent surrenders. Snoopy was actually a Kijiji dog. Some guy just bought Snoopy off Kijiji, brought him home for a day, and realized that something's wrong with Snoopy. He's not your average puppy that like is happy. He was very sad, very shut down, terrified. Um, when the guy had purchased Snoopy, he's the breeder, the backyard breeder, they weren't registered or anything, said that Snoopy was about four months old. 
um, that was far from the truth. So the guy realized something's wrong and he wasn't equipped to deal with the training that Snoopy needed. So after one day of having him, he brought him to us and asked for help, um, which was actually the right thing to do because Snoopy does have some challenges and needs the proper home. Um, so he came to us, we evaluated him more. He's actually about eight or nine months, maybe even a year, our vet said. So we're thinking that the breeder just couldn't sell him or something and just kind of gave him to whoever would buy him. Snoopy had a lot of trauma that he went through, was probably crated for a long time, had no exposure. So he's very scared of people. It's hard to house train him because he's so used to peeing and pooping in a crate and just sitting in it. Um, and also with, with dogs, he's not so friendly with dogs. And that's most likely because he was in a crate surrounded by puppies and whoever knows what was in that backyard breeder's house. Snoopy's situation fits into the broader picture of high demand for cute looking dogs, backyard breeders creating the supply to meet the demand, and then some dogs like Snoopy get treated like expendable commodities in the shuffle and end up surrendered at shelter. It's the least favorite part of my job, I would say, um, just because I can't relate to people that are surrendering their dogs. Like when we have adoptions or like the happy things, we can relate to people and it's a nice conversation. But with surrenders, most of the time I can't relate to people and I can't understand how someone can just dispose of their dog, no matter how hard it is or if you're moving or whatever. So that's definitely, it's the most draining part of all of our jobs because the people surrendering, they're not, um, most of the time, they're not, they're not doing it for the dog's best interest. It's just what's convenient, right? They could just drop their dog off at Dogtails where it's cute and beautiful and the dog will be okay sort of thing. The Dogtails shelter is able to find satisfactory homes for about 350 dogs per year. Any that don't get placed remain at the shelter for the rest of their natural lives. As for Snoopy... We finally found a family that... He's actually getting adopted in a few days. Uh, there's been a, a really nice gentleman that's coming to visit with him, has seen all of Snoopy's kind of characteristics and he loves him and he's gonna put in a lot of work and we're gonna work together the next little bit with training. Yeah. With all these languishing real dogs out there, it might seem a bit unnecessary to worry also about how the fictional ones are getting along. But Molly begs to differ. The dog is really often ignored as an individual in itself in literature. She argues that dogs in literature are often used as convenient plot devices. Take, for example, all the classic boy-meets-dog stories in American literature. It's usually a male coming-of-age story of boyhood growing up, and as you become an adult, your dog dies. And that's sort of your first encounter with death that primes you for the realities of adulthood. So that's a really common trope. We see that with um, Old Yeller, My Dog Skip, um, even The Art of Racing in the Rain, lots of contemporary ones. It's a lot of male protagonist, dog must die in the end sort of stories. I know, Mama. <laughs> He was my dog. I'll do it. Quickly, I left Mama and went to stand in the light of the burning bare grass. I reloaded my gun 
and called Old Yeller back from the house. I stuck the muzzle of the gun against his head and, and pulled the trigger. Molly's not only looking at stories centered on a human-dog relationship, she's actually more interested in novels where dogs are just bit players, as these can be more revealing. My favorite example to use is To Kill a Mockingbird because even in Canada, that book is still just consistently read in grade nine English and has been for 50 years, it seems, and without much reference to the scene with the dog. Stay inside, son, said Atticus. Mr. Tate handed the rifle to Atticus. Gemini nearly fainted. The character Atticus in To Kill a Mockingbird is a lawyer, and in his kid's eyes, not exactly a manly man. There's a chapter where it opens with Scout and Jem kind of questioning their father's masculinity and his manliness. Take him, Mr. Finch. Oh, no, Mr. Tate. He can't shoot. Don't waste time, Eric. For God's sake, Mr. Finch, he's got to be killed right away before he starts running. Look where he is. I can't shoot that well, and you know it. I haven't shot a gun in years. Well, I'd feel mighty comfortable if you did now. Coincidentally, in that chapter, a supposedly mad dog is roaming the streets, and it becomes Atticus's job to save the neighborhood by killing the dog. In a fog, Jem and I watched our father take the gun and walk out into the middle of the street. He walked quickly, but I thought he moved like an underwater swimmer. Time had slowed to a nauseating crawl. The dog leaped, flopped over, and crumbled on the sidewalk in a brown and white heap. He didn't know what hit him. What's the matter, boy? Can't you talk? Didn't you know your daddy's the best shot in this county? Oh, hush, heck. <laughs> the dog symbolically becomes this, the means by which Atticus can achieve masculine standing in the eyes of his children. So there's no mourning for the loss of the dog whatsoever. It's almost sickeningly celebratory the way Scout and Jem react to their father killing the dog. They're very proud of him. They think that's something to brag about. As Molly got deeper into her research, she discovered there's quite a lot of incidental dog killing in great American novels. Slaughterhouse Five, Grapes of Wrath, um, The Great Gatsby, there's a dog that probably dies in there. And so the author is choosing to take this sort of unexplored avenue and kill a dog there and then return back to the original plot as if the dog, they're not really essential to the plot in any way, but we're killing them in the literature anyways. And I think the way that that has been overlooked in books that we read so much and that we revisit so much sort of mirrors the way we overlook the harm we cause animals in real life. If you say something happens, like he was treated like a dog, it's become sort of an idiom in our language. He died like a dog. He died like a coward. Tell us we will die like dogs. You will die like dogs. No, we will not die like dogs. We will fight like lions. It's bad to treat a person the way you would treat a dog. But in our heads, we would think, well, we treat dogs well. But that saying and the way we rely on it regularly seems to state otherwise. It almost states that we're comfortable mistreating dogs.
Deconstruction is an approach to reading and listening, which rather than trying to uncover an author's essential argument or underlying intention, attends instead to the shifting and contradictory patterns that play on the surface of a text. Deconstruction is an, is an ugly and difficult word. Molly builds her critique with help from literary theorists, including the Algerian-born French philosopher Jacques Derrida. I'll try to, to speak uh, in a jargon-free language, as they say in, in the United States. Jargon-free, or, or to say cholesterol-free, or uh, sugar-free. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, jargon-free, jargon-free language. Derrida was famous for interrogating the common uses of words, pointing out assumptions and ideological biases that he saw as built in to the way we speak. The question of the animal is in all of my works, but recently I avoid speaking generally of the animal. When one speaks of the animal, one already fails to understand. Well, you can't really talk about animals without including Derrida at some point, and specifically his lecture series called The Animal That Therefore I Am. The Animal That Therefore I Am is a 10-hour lecture that Jack Derrida delivered in 1997. He split it over 10 days, so it wasn't all one marathon. He begins by really zeroing in on the idea of an animal's point of view in a strikingly intimate way. When caught naked, in silence by the gaze of an animal, for example, the eyes of a cat, I have trouble, yes, a difficult time overcoming my embarrassment. He paints this philosophical image of him standing naked before his pet cat. Like he gets out of the shower and his cat just kind of gazes upon him. The cat's eyes looking at me, as it were, from head to toe, just to see not hesitating to concentrate its vision in the direction of my genitals. To see without going to see, without touching yet, and without biting, although that threat remains on its lips or on the tip of the tongue. It's hard to simplify Derrida, but he talks about how, like, the idea of being naked means to be without clothes, but animals are always without clothes, yet they are never naked. And so I think... In my attempt to sort of condense that lecture, I would say one of his main points is that clothes are part of that sort of social construct that lends itself to humans thinking we're superior to other animals. And he talks about how we we talk about the human versus the animal as if they're these different things and as if we're not animals ourselves and as if all other animals can sort of be lumped together. He calls it into like an undifferentiated mass. And so his lecture series is kind of calling on more individual treatment of different species of animals and within those species of individual animals as individuals themselves, I guess. I kind of like to think that I'm taking upon his call in the avenue of the dog.
does it really mean to take an animal's point of view? I think what it means to take the animal's point of view is to disregard the human gaze, because we do always filter animal existence and animal embodiment through the human perspective. And I think it's almost impossible to completely disregard that even in our attempts to occupy the animal's standpoint. But I do still think that there are sometimes benefits to doing so if it's to create a sympathetic portrait of the animal and inspire criticism or reflection of our relationships with them. And you mentioned this classic genre of dog meets boy <laughs> stories. Mm. Um, and then, of course, even in To Kill a Mockingbird, it's, uh, you know, Atticus has this masculinity test with the dog. How does gender analysis play into your approach? Does it have a role? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So my second chapter where I discuss To Kill a Mockingbird, the focus of that chapter is how dogs figure in girlhood coming-of-age stories. So I look at Scout in To Kill a Mockingbird, and I look at Piccola in The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, and their interactions with dogs are alarmingly different from the male interactions with dogs that I look at in my first chapter. So they're not really actively participating or actively seeking out the relationship with dogs the way that the sort of cliche male coming-of-age story requires them to do. And so I do kind of argue that the privilege of a certain gender might allow for a different relationship with animals. And it seems to be a bit more, what's the word I'm thinking of? It's a bit more socially normalized for like men and animals to be together than it is for women and animals to be together. And even indirectly, my second chapter where it's about female coming-of-age stories and how dogs figure in those almost indirectly supports that same notion because they're not, in both of these texts, it's not a positive interaction with the um, the young girl and the dog. It leads to the dog's death in both cases. Interesting. And um, I, I wonder if it's about the sort of male mastery over the animal, which allows for that friendship to to blossom. And maybe it's, maybe I'm overanalyzing here, but traditionally speaking, women are not seen to be masters of, um, of much. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe that's factoring into it. Yeah, you definitely can't overanalyze literature. That's what all English majors are here (laughs) for. But, um, (laughs) but um, yeah, I would agree with that. And I think the dog's almost an interesting analogy as well, because I think that sort of mastery over nature, mastery over animals lends itself to the sort of public sphere that men are historically expected to inhabit, whereas women are supposed to inhabit the domestic space. So the dog is this kind of fluid being at this point in culture where we've domesticated them so thoroughly that they are inhabiting the domestic space as regularly as women were expected to historically. So there's an interesting tension there that I'd like to tease out a bit more in my research as well. So who are uh, some contemporary theorists whose work you find useful for helping you analyze what's going on in the fiction? Definitely Josephine Donovan is someone who I find useful because she's who introduced me to animal standpoint criticism. The overall point of this is to change the dominant cultural attitude toward animals. She wrote a great article called Aestheticizing Animal Cruelty, and she talks about how the problem with aestheticizing it and the problem almost with analyzing it too thoroughly is that we're able to find meaning in animal cruelty. So if animals are being harmed for the sake of literature and for the sake of symbolism or for the sake of the development of the character, our ability to decipher that meaning 
is almost a negative practice because it allows us to find an answer and something that should not have an answer. There shouldn't be a reason or an answer for why we are being cruel to animals. But if we practice searching for that meaning and searching for almost a reason to justify it, then that lends itself to what we do in real life and how we can justify continued cruelty to animal and animals in so many other spaces. Fascinating and bamboozling. Thanks for helping us direct our chase. We will see you at the end of the program. Great. Thank you. Okay. See you soon. You're listening to Of Dogs and Derrida on Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear Ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, we're featuring the work of Queen's University PhD student Molly Lebensky. Her focus is on the representation of dogs in American literature, and she argues that authors should consider the animal's vantage point when writing their fiction. Her approach to literary analysis is influenced by a strain of thought called animal standpoint theory. Well, animal standpoint theory derives from standpoint theory, which was originated to apply by Marxist theorists to the uh, proletariat on the theory that the proletariat has a standpoint that is more truthful and uh, more accurate on its oppression than the oppressors who have a self-serving, rationalizing view of the oppression. That's Josephine Donovan, Professor Emerita in the Department of English at the University of Maine. She's the author of The Aesthetics of Care on the Literary Treatment of Animals, and she's one of the founding figures of animal standpoint theory. Feminists have applied that idea to women and the theory that women have a, a truthful uh, view of their oppression. And I've applied it to animals, arguing that animals have a standpoint about the way that they're being treated and that humans should pay attention to that standpoint. And why is it important for literary authors to attempt to consider the standpoint of animals in their stories? Well, I think insofar as literature is part of the general culture, it helps to establish that animals are subjects, that they're not objects, uh, which is the way that they're considered in the major official discourses of today, such as the law and commerce. They're considered uh, commodities. In the law, they're considered property. And in science, they're considered objects for laboratory experimentation. And so to the extent that literature can destabilize this objectification of animals, that's what animal standpoint criticism is uh, encouraging. 
And can a uh, human author, obviously authors are human, can a human author ever claim to truly understand an animal's point of view? Well, you can, of course, ask that question about humans, too. I mean, can we ever completely understand another person's point of view? But uh, animals communicate through uh, various signs, communicative signs, so that we can readily read. I don't think there's any question that humans can understand these communications. And, of course, an author can also use those communications to uh, try to imagine what the uh, standpoint of the animal is. I mean, literature is a phenomenon of the imagination, and uh, an author imagines human characters. I see no reason why they couldn't and can't, in fact, do sometimes successfully uh, imagine animal characters. And what are some of the best strategies, would you say, for an author to um, achieve that? Well, I think Leo Tolstoy is a good example of a, uh, an author who manages to incorporate the animal's point of view almost in passing. I mean, he doesn't make a big deal out of it. But uh, even a novel like Anna Karenina, which hardly anyone would think has much to do with animals, there's a wonderful lengthy scene actually about a dog named Laska who belongs to one of the main characters, Levin. And the dog's point of view is very clearly laid out, and the dog often disagrees with Levin. Tolstoy implies that sometimes the dog is more knowledgeable about a particular issue than the human character. So I think um, it's very possible to do it. It has been done successfully, but unfortunately, most authors resort to time-honored literary devices that sort of uh, minimize or deny or ignore the uh, standpoint of the animal as a living creature. And does it matter ultimately that the author's attempt to represent the animal's standpoint is accurate or is it sort of the thought that counts? I think I think the, the main point is that animals should not just be used as literary devices. I mean, so often they're just used as symbols or metaphors or in some way to comment on the state of mind of the human character. And the animal herself is discarded and basically ignored. And uh, uh, so many narratives uh, do this. It's, it's just almost a commonplace. In fact, it would disrupt the traditional narrative, I think, to give the animals more voice. And I think that's what animal standpoint criticism is uh, calling for. I can see that if the author's goal is to show us this human character, they might sort of defend using the animal. I mean, the animal is not as important to that author, I suppose, as their human character. And so it's part of their aesthetic work in the novel to to have that scene of cruelty. From the individual author's point of view, what is the problem of making this scene for their aesthetic purposes out of cruelty like that? It just uh, reinforces the human uh, belief that animals are disposable and that they can be used however one wishes uh, for human purposes. Uh, that is, the animals themselves as living creatures are, are simply ignored. And I, as I say, the overall point of this is to help change the 
dominant cultural attitude toward animals to get away from this notion of them as inert objects. And so to the extent that authors are feeding into that narrative, um, they're vulnerable, I think, to animal standpoint criticism. Josephine Donovan, thank you so much for your insights. Well, thank you. Josephine Donovan is Professor Emerita at the University of Maine, and she has a new book coming out called Animals, Mind and Matter. Josephine Donovan says we need to treat animals as subjects, not objects. And she extends that plea to authors when writing about fictional animals, too. So we decide to run this idea past one of Canada's biggest fans of dog-related fiction. Come here, Tom. Come here. All right. Come on up and say hello. Richard Teleki is the editor of the Exile Book of Canadian Dog Stories. He's also the author of a collection of short essays called A Dog on the Bed. And he is the housemate of a small dog named Toby. He is a King Charles Spaniel. Cutie patootie. What beautiful wavy ears he has. He has beautiful coloring. Okay, you can get that. He's very quiet, too. He's not a barky dog. No, he's used to coming with me everywhere, so he's learned not to bark. And when you say everywhere, like do you, do you take him to school? Oh, when do I you... taught, he came to classes. He sat in on PhD orals. He he was the department mascot. Ah. Are you a dog lover? Oh yes, I've always had dogs in my life. Um, you heard Professor Donovan. What's your take on her commentary, just overall? It's a complicated one because, on the surface of what she's saying, I pretty much agree. It's important to treat a dog or any animal or any human being as a subject rather than an object. And when you work from that, you understand how fragile the relationship is because we can't really understand dogs since we're not dogs. And they can't understand us because they're not people. So we're always negotiating how we can have a relationship and not project things onto each other. Is there anything you would ask authors to do differently when they put dogs in their stories? I would say don't use gratuitous violence around animals to appeal to your reader. In the same way that when you see a movie that has dogs in it, you'll often, if you stay through the end, see a credit that says no live animals were harmed or sacrificed or brutalized in the making of this film. And you will see violent scenes with animals, but they're careful to let you know, if they're telling the truth, that they weren't harming the animal. Well, I think writers are obliged to not use animals for cheap effects, neither to sentimentalize them or use them as occasions of brutality to simply catch up your reader's attention. So far, so agreeable, but Josephine Donovan did go a bit further than that in her criticisms of literary authors. The main point is that animals should not just be used as literary devices. I mean, so often they're just used as symbols or metaphors or in some way to comment on the state of mind of the human character. On this point, Richard Teleki is not so sure. I'm genuinely puzzled about her attitude towards the imagination. She's very concerned about dogs being used as literary symbols and as metaphors. And if you are too 
judgmental about the way writers in the past have used animals, you do a disservice both to the writer and to the past. There's a tendency in modern criticism, basically since about 1990, for academics and critics to look at the text in front of them as something that they can, in fact, interrogate. And that's the word they use. They want to interrogate texts. Well, that's a term that you would use if you're a torturer. And when you're interrogating a text, you're establishing yourself as superior to the text. If you're really going to be contemporary in your judgments about that, you're going to wipe out much of Western literature. So I think there's the potential in what she said for a careless thinker or a careless reader to be a bit Stalinesque or like the Red Guard and say, this is not good because they didn't understand that and we understand it better. No, we may not understand it better because, of course, down the road, 50 years from now, there's going to be another generation or two judging us and saying, gosh, they really weren't very enlightened after all. They thought they were, but they weren't. And looking back at the trends in literature over a longer period, can you point out any big differences between the way dogs were written about, say, back in the 1800s versus today? There are massive differences. We have to recognize that when we talk about the modern dog, we're not talking about the dog in 1600 and the Middle Ages. We're talking about something that has been engineered for our purposes. Gradually, as the country, Canada and the United States, shifted from an agrarian country to a, a, a more citified industrial country, animals had a different role in our lives, and especially dogs. So dogs that were written about around, let's say, 1900 were often the subject of adventure stories. Jack London's Call of the Wild would be a great one. Dogs weren't yet a part of the family. They weren't living, not necessarily in the kitchen, they weren't even living in the living room. They were out in the backyard or on the porch. As we brought dogs into our houses, into our living rooms to sit next to us while we were watching TV, our attitude shifted and then the attitude of writers shifted. So we wrote about dogs differently. We wrote about them as either subjects of the family or for contemporary writing because they've addressed violence more and more in every facet of their writing subjects of violence mystery death symbols of things we can't understand richard this has been so interesting thank you so much for your time oh it's been my pleasure richard telecky is the author of a dog on the bed And before he retired, he was a professor in the Humanities Department at York University. So Richard favors writing about dogs in a way that respects their status as subjects rather than objects. But he's skeptical of animal standpoint theory when it criticizes authors for using animals as symbols and metaphors. It's certainly a provocative idea to put to a literary author. Hello, my name is Jan Martell. I'm a writer. I live in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Jan Martell is probably best known for his Booker Prize winning novel, Life of Pi. All of his major novels rely heavily on animal characters serving in highly symbolic or metaphorical roles. And Yan also lives with a pet dog, a Havanese named Bamboo. But unlike the other guests we've heard from, Yan comes across as a bit less doting towards him or her. 
I'm totally indifferent to it. To be honest, it's very much at the bottom of my of my list of priorities. But the children like it, and I'm actually fairly indifferent to domesticated animals. I find them less interesting because they're in this permanent state of infantilization. Do you consider yourself then an animal lover? Is that a, a phrase you would use ever to describe yourself? Well, only in the broadest sense of a, I'm a citizen of this world, and we don't live on it alone. Uh, we cannot live on it alone, so we need to care about animals. So in that sense, yes, in terms of, you know, uh, having little stuffies of animals in my room and uh, uh, loving other people's pets, no, not particularly. As I said, uh, domesticated animals in particular, I used to have a parrot and they are particularly fascinating creatures because they're highly, highly social animals, very complex in their relationship and their, their intelligence is very lively and they're very communicative animals. So I found the parrot very interesting. Cats and dogs I find slightly boring. I find they have dull personalities. Dogs are endlessly happy. Cats are sort of reticent. Um, so I found them kind of limited in their personality. Fish are beautiful, but they're a hassle to upkeep. And and when you're writing about animals, what is it that you find fascinating about considering the animal's point of view? The usefulness of animals is precisely that they can serve as a tool for us to see who we are and what we need to do. So the usefulness of animals for me is precisely that they're very rich as metaphors. We tend to be very cynical about our own species. We tend not to be cynical about animals, especially wild animals. We imbue animals with a sense of wonder, of marvel, and that's very useful for a storyteller because then I can take an animal character and right away get beyond your natural cynicism. Jan says one great thing about fictional animals is how easy they are to portray quickly and simply in ways that conform to readers' expectations. For instance, a cat can instantly come across as sly and clever, a hyena as cowardly, a chimpanzee as just like us. Now, of course, it doesn't fully represent what those animals are. But to me, that's a secondary thing. If you want to look at how animals actually are, then you're no longer talking about literature. You're talking about ethology. And ethology, you know, which is the study of animal behavior, is very useful. But it's kind of a niche product. You know, how slugs behave is reasonably useful if you want to save the slug. But it's not terribly interesting unless you're particularly interested in slugs. Whereas a story that features a slug, and for example, I remember when I went to England uh, one of, a few years ago, there was a whole campaign to reduce people's intake of salt, how it was bad for the heart, for blood pressure. And the featured animal for this was Sid the slug. Slugs don't like salt either, right? You pour salt on a slug, it shrivels up and it dies. So the, the, the animal to speak about the importance of reducing your salt intake was Sid the slug. And it was quite amusing and very effective. So, you know, we characterize the slug just by its dislike of salt, and it spoke to people. You know, this idea of, of you're ignoring the animal's point of view. You know, stories are only useful for us. Uh, animals don't have stories. So to tell the story of a slug from the slug's point of view serves no purpose for the slug. And it'll be quite dull for us because a slug has a very limited intellect. Uh, getting its sensibility is kind of, it doesn't serve a purpose. Earlier, our PhD student mentioned a scene from To Kill a Mockingbird where Atticus proves he's a man by shooting a supposedly rabid dog. But Jan Martel reads that scene differently. Is this a kind of literary cruelty to animals? No, I would say, because... The very killing of the animal would outrage a number of readers. You know, a number of children reading that book would be 
Unless there was, you know, it depends on to what degree they read the madness of the dog. If it truly is, you know, if, they, if a child reading that really feels that it's a dangerous, rabid dog that's about to bite people, then they would see that, yes, first of all, if it's a rabid, the dog does need to die because it's a horrible way to die, rabies. And if it's not seen as genuinely mad, then, and that's precisely the strength of the scene is that you feel, oh my God, this is, this is unseemly. This is, this is somehow cruel. This is, it, it stirs up our emotions. So, and you know, it's, it's very funny for someone to say that, that they object to the way this dog is portrayed, who then an hour later has a hamburger for lunch. If you're really going to pursue this point of view, you have to be vegan. Of course, our PhD student, Molly Lebensky, is vegan, so that particular line of challenge might not pose any problems for her. But Jan also makes a provocative argument in favor of animal cruelty in fiction. The point of portraying cruelty to animals is that it outrages us. It makes us feel something. And therefore, because we feel something, we presumably learn from it and therefore don't perform cruelty either to animals or to humans. You know, listen, there's a very interesting correlation. The height of cruelty to animals in zoos was in the 19th century, when any number of people would go to zoos in London and in Europe and, you know, beat the animals, spit at them, poke at them. There's an interesting correlation between the rise of human rights and the diminishing of cruelty to animals. Because your average working class man would go to the zoo in London and says, my master beats me, and so I will beat this animal. It's only once that working class man realized, wait a second, in post-war, you know, England, when the right, you know, the, the class system started to fall apart, and your average person said, you know what, I'm a worthy person. I'm worthy of respect. My master cannot beat me. In fact, my master is not my master. We are equal citizens. Then animal cruelty started to go down. So there's a usefulness to animal cruelty in fiction because it is only in fiction. It is imagined. You know, it is, it's like saying, arguing, let's not have violence on television. Well, you know, you know, egregious violence is kind of pointless, but we are violent in our imagination so that we are not violent in reality. And everyone knows the real difference between fictional violence and real violence. I can watch any number of violent movies, but the one, the very, very, very rare times I've come close to human violence, once a drunk man coming out of a bar when I was at university, I could see was on the, on the edge of hitting me. And that was shocking to me. And once I remember a fellow student actually hit me in the face. And I remember being shocked by that. Because I'm like, oh, this is not fictional. This is real. We know the difference. And same thing in fiction. We do violence to animals and to humans in fiction to, to increase their sensibility to not do it in real life. Even when an author does have a cruel or careless attitude towards animals... Jan argues it doesn't make the story less valuable as literature. I think there's no hard and fast rules. It depends how well it's, it's done. There's also a wonderful story by... I got to remember, all the, I should check this out. There's a wonderful story by Flaubert. What's it called again? Oh, anyway, in it, there's, I remember reading it and being I couldn't believe the, the number of animals that are murdered by this hunter. It's in su so, of course, their animal suffering is like the big thing. And they die in their hundreds and hundreds, stags. I can't remember what the animals call them. Anyway, they're... Legend of St. Julius, is that it? Yes, there we go. That's it. They're, it's amazing the number of animals that are murdered. And because of that, as a, 20, a late 20th century reader, I felt, oh my God, this is, this is terrible. 
Now, did Flaubert care about them? No, he didn't care at all about them. He'd be the perfect example that your professor, uh, Professor Donovan, would object to. But she's missing the point that it's, it's, it depends on the sensitivity, the sensitivity with which we read a story that will get something out of it. So you read that story, The Legend of St. Julian, and you feel for those animals. You, and you get to the Christ analogy, too. You get to human suffering, too. We don't like that either. But you're astonished at the level of animal suffering represented in that story that Flaubert didn't care about. You very quickly go beyond the author's intent to what you can get out of it. And what a late 20th century, early 22nd century reader will get out of that story, The Legend of St. Julian, is, my God, what a, what a disregard for animal life. Jan Martel, this has been so great speaking with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. We'll have to do it again. Jan Martel's books include The High Mountains of Portugal, Beatrice and Virgil, and Life of Pi. He lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And Molly Lebensky has joined us again to wrap up the show. Hi, Molly. Hi there. How's it going? Very well. And, and we'll jump right into it. Um, what is your response to Jan Martel's idea that we readers are free to read animal cruelty any way we like, so it's not necessarily a problem if authors aren't presenting an animal point of view. Yeah, I definitely disagree with what he's saying about how animals don't have stories, but I do admire his admitted neutrality towards certain types of animals. I think there is this strange pressure, as Tom pointed out, to identify as an animal lover. And then once you do that, you're in pretty tricky territory because many of your actions may not line up with that. So I think it's important to be able to admit whether or not you actually care about certain things and not having to live up with the pressures that come with caring about those things. I can see the potential in animal violence in literature in regard to bringing around change and highlighting areas where we are potentially cruel to animals, which is essentially what I am trying to do. I'm trying to highlight areas where we think we have this great relationship with animals, but the reality of the fiction shows otherwise. Um, I don't think it's necessarily great to overdo it. So I think of shows like Cops and things like that, where they're designed to sort of desensitize us to police brutality and ultimately normalize it. So I think the more we read about dogs specifically and the purpose of dogs being to die in our lives, ultimately, the more we readily accept it without question and the more, um, the further away we move from a more harmonious and symbiotic relationship with them. Hmm. And and getting to the point about animals not having stories, you disagree with that? I do, yeah. I believe every animal is an individual, and I know that the ones in literature are created and fictional, but as are the human characters and as are every element of the fictional realm. So I think it's important to cater to those different beings and those different features of literature on an even playing field. I think when he says animals don't have stories... I don't think he meant there aren't stories to their lives that we could tell, but the animals themselves don't tell stories. Does that change it? Yeah, I would agree that they maybe don't tell their own stories, but if we also don't make any effort to tell them at all, then I think that contributes to the objectification of animals or the sort of dismissiveness of animals that Josephine Donovan and myself would be concerned with. And what's your own take on what Josephine Donovan is really saying about animal symbols and metaphors? Because that seemed to be a tripping up point for the uh, two authors we spoke to. Yeah, there'll always be a bit of a discrepancy between the opinions of literary critics and authors. Um, I really 
admired Josephine Donovan's opinion that if we reduce them to symbols only and we limit them to that, that it inhibits our ability to really ever understand their standpoint. So I think maybe the exercise of trying to understand their standpoint more will be the result of not just reducing them to symbols and not only treating them that way. What is your ultimate mission with your PhD work? It's definitely altered my perspective on dogs. I also grew up wanting a specific type of dog and thinking there's no problem with that. Like I wanted a white German shepherd and or I got like I understood why people wanted dogs that didn't shed and things like that. So I try to remain sympathetic to the fact that I went through that transition as well and needed to be made aware of the potential problems of that type of thinking and how many worthy companions are being still euthanized in shelters to cater to those sort of preferences. So I would really like for people to just be aware because I genuinely think a lot of the time it's just not considered. A lot of people that I've talked to have said, oh, I never even thought of that. So I'm hoping that it's more just about raising awareness about alternative ways and potentially more harmonious and symbiotic ways that we can continue having dogs in our lives because we do love them and they do add a lot of value. And where is Duncan right now? Your pup. He is lying down behind me, leaning against the couch, <laughs> sleeping away. <laughs> oh, lovely. Well, Molly, it's been such a pleasure learning about your work. And yes, it opened my eyes. So thank you so much for, for taking the time with us. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Bye, Molly. You were listening to Of Dogs and Derrida, part of our ongoing series, Ideas from the Trenches, where we showcase PhD research going on across the country. The producers are Nikola Lukšić and Tom Howell. Thanks to Dog Tales Sanctuary in King City, Ontario, and to all of our guests. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Richard Tellecki. My name is Cassandra Ferrante. I'm Josephine Donovan. Hello, my name is Jan Martel. Hi, I'm Molly Lebensky. I'm a fifth-year PhD candidate at Queen's University in the English department. You can go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, for more information about their books, dogs, and other projects. Thanks as well to Claire Miller and Mitchell Goldenthal for their readings of To Kill a Mockingbird and Old Yeller. And to Derek Webster for reading the translations of Derrida's The Animal That Therefore I Am. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayad. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.